Attention listeners, ahead are spoilers. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Trap. My name is Russell Carlson, and with me as always, my good friend and co-host, Chris Boroff. How do I get to Beale Street? <laughs> and with me as always, as well, my equally good friend and equal co-host, Zach Powers. I uh, was going to say kindly Dave Franco, but now I just have the Sesame Street theme in my head, but with Beale. <laughs> Tell me how to get, how to, get to, to Beale Street. Welcome to the movie trap. Uh, on the movie trap, each of the three hosts that you just met picks a theme, or one of the three hosts you just met picks a theme, and then each of the hosts picks a movie based on that theme. After we've watched all three movies, uh, which we are doing today, we will then vote uh, with an allocated amount of points to figure out which movie wins. Whichever host movie wins the vote, that host gets to pick the next theme, which stay tuned because that's what's going to be happening later on. So we are in round three of Zach Powers' theme of city movies based off of cities that we currently or used to live in. Uh, Chris being LA, Zach being Chicago, and me being New York City. Zach went first with Chicago for Widows. Uh, Chris went second for Los Angeles for The Long Goodbye. And now you find yourself with me, someone who has not lived in New York for over a decade, picking a movie that he has not seen before, uh, thinking that it would reflect uh, an element of New York that he has not seen before, which is true. Uh, and that is 2018's uh, if Beale Street Could Talk, directed by Barry Jenkins and um, written by the, well, based off the novel by James Baldwin. So, uh, with that in mind, before we get into the the <laughs> the roller coaster ride of of grounded melodrama of this movie, let's uh, get a quick rundown of the points for you at home to follow along. So, Chris Boreff. You have 11 points for final voting with two bonus points to give out. I have 11 points for final voting with one bonus point to give out. And Zach Powers, you have 12 points for final voting and two bonus points to give out. So with that in mind, uh, Zach, why don't we uh, go ahead and tunnel on through uh, our, our maps and our subways if Beale Street could talk. Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, so first, before I begin, let me say that this movie is non-linear. Um, and uh, I did watch it a bit ago. I had a long weekend uh, with a lot of events occurring. So I'm going to recite, I'm going to give these plot details. They may not occur exactly as they do in the movie or what have you, just because it jumps around. But you'll get a general idea of what occurs and If Bill Street Could Talk, which is... A 2018 drama film, uh, some romantic elements in there too. Um, it's written and directed by Barry Jenkins. It's based on a James Baldwin uh, novel of the same name. Uh, it stars Kiki Lane and Stephen James uh, as a young couple in love named Tish and Fonny. Uh, Tish and Fonny are uh, childhood friends who have grown to be, uh, you know, they're in love with each other. Um, and now recently they've learned they are, uh, well, early in the film, you re you learn that they are expecting a child. Uh, they hadn't planned on it, but it turns out that Tish is expecting. Uh, but unfortunately, at the same time, Fani is in prison. He has been accused of uh, raping a, a young Puerto Rican woman. 
in a violent way, though the facts of the case don't really add up. Fani has a good alibi. He was on the other side of the city. Um, the only thing that that is giving it any credence is this. She just happened to pick him out of a lineup. Um, but it doesn't seem like the evidence really points to Fani being the culprit, nor does uh, the characterization of him we see uh, during the film, uh, where he is portrayed as a very kind, loving uh, man. Um, Fani, uh, before this, uh, this incident, like I said, it jumps back and forth to before Fani was arrested and the time period where he is in prison awaiting trial. Prior to his arrest, he was uh, sort of a metal worker and artist. Um, he and Tish are attempting to find an apartment of their own, but uh, at the time, this is uh, like in the 1970s, uh, most landlords refuse to rent out apartments to black people. Whenever they go to a showing, it seems like the landlords freeze up and basically they're they're unable to, to find anything. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I think I'll probably just kind of go as linear as possible instead of trying to jump back and forth like the movie does. That's fair. Um, yeah. Uh, just know that in the film, these things, it just jumps back and forth between the two time periods. There's a narration. Um, she she will say something and then the, the film will kind of flash back. Right. They, they do like vignettes. It's like an ensemble piece yeah. with vignettes. So that's kind of it. But yeah, go ahead, for, go ahead and do the straight and narrow of it. It's easier. Yeah. Uh, so they're trying to find a place to live. It's difficult because of racism. Um, but they eventually find kindly Dave Frango, a Jewish uh, landlord, is willing to offer them an unfinished sort of uh, place. His reasoning being that he just enjoys seeing people who are in love, basically. Um, so it seems like maybe things are on the right track around this same time. Uh, one of their old friends is released from a 10 year stint in prison and uh, comes to visit Fani and the two of them you know, talk uh, through the day and eventually this friend played by Brian, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who is also in Widows, um, relates that, uh, you know, Fawny doesn't understand what it's like in prison, how they can basically do whatever they want to you, how the worst part is the constant fear. It's a, you know, a, a, a short but like very impactful monologue about, you know, the loss of autonomy when they send you over to, to the prison com uh, industrial complex. Um, uh, regardless, uh, they uh, continue on with their lives. And one night, um, while they are celebrating the fact that they seem like they're going to be able to land this apartment, um, Tish goes to the store to uh, buy a few things for dinner and is accosted by a white man in the store. Uh, Fani uh, walks in midway through and tosses the man out of the store raising the hackles of a nearby racist cop um, who uh, begins sort of interrogating the two of them and letting the the guy who is sort of assaulting Tish run off uh, scot-free. Um, ultimately, he can't bring them in on anything, but clearly he is not a particularly big fan of Fani, even though both Tish and the person who owns the store is like, Fani was in the right, this guy was going after Tish. So shortly thereafter, uh, this... Uh, this rape occurs, and it seems like this racist cop goes out of his way to bring in Fani and stick him in the lineup. We don't actually see the lineup, but it's probably a safe bet that he tries to point her towards him. Um, so he is landed in prison. Uh, around this time is when Tish learns uh, that he, she is pregnant. So she brings uh, 
the parents, both of their parents together, and uh, tells them that she is pregnant with Fonny's child and that, you know, she's going to keep it and they're going to raise the kid together, even though obviously Fonny's future is unclear at this point. Um, uh, Fonny's mother, I believe, is extremely, and sister are extremely chilly towards her. Uh, they're, in fact, quite rude, though. Uh, Fonny's father and the rest of the family is very supportive and like sort of gets them to back down uh, after sort of they accuse them of being like sinful and irresponsible. Yeah, and they're all that very kind of like church going folk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. they kind of, they kind of seem a feat. Like they're very mm -hmm. like yeah. uh, they they seem to come across like they think they're fancier than everyone else in the room, and it leads to a very uncomfortable confrontation. Yeah. Uh, regardless, uh, after the get-together where they announce the pregnancy, um, they uh, start dealing with the legal process of trying to get Fonny free. It's obviously very expensive. They get a lawyer who, while he seems to be invested in the case and uh, clearing Fonny, he's even noted to kind of become disgusted by the way that other people like are sort of contemptuous uh, of this case and act like it doesn't matter. Um so it seems like at least they have that going for them. But nonetheless, it's an extremely expensive situation. Uh, both of the fathers begin to do small time scams to help raise money to pay for lawyers and things of that nature. Um, you know, stealing things off trucks and stuff like that. Um, anyway, uh, as it goes on, we learn that uh, unfortunately, the woman who uh, accused him has been has gone back to Puerto Rico. Um, but since the racist officer, Officer Bell, is still planning to testify, it, it seems like this won't break the case and Fonny's still in trouble. And so they send Fonny's mother, played by uh, Regina King, to Puerto Rico to track down um, this young woman. Um, and she does uh, manage to eventually do so. She first talks to, I think, her father, and her father sets up a meeting with, uh, with her. And um, unfortunately, uh, even though it does seem like this woman probably didn't get a good look at who actually assaulted her, it does seem clear she genuinely was assaulted by someone. And when uh, Fonny's mother becomes desperate and attempts to like and grabs, tries to grab her by the shoulders to plead with her, uh, the woman like sort of freaks out about having her personal space invaded and starts screaming. Um, and they're separated uh, without her able to get this woman to recant her testimony and help Fonny uh, get out of prison. So she head ho heads home, sort of defeated. Um, anyway, they uh, at this point, um, I mean, I, there's been a few other like small things that happen over the course of the movie. But generally speaking, this is close to the end. And it's revealed that Fonny eventually just has to accept a plea deal because there's just no way to, you know, the, the case is just not going to go for him and uh, is stuck in prison. And the final scene jumps, I don't know, seven, eight years into the future, maybe more. Uh, there's a young boy, their child, uh, who comes to visit Fonny in prison with Tish. And the two of them have uh, a meal from the vending machines and uh, look forward to Fonny hopefully being released at some point. Um, mm -hmm. and that's more or less the plot of if Beale Street should talk. Yeah, that that is pretty much more or less the plot. I mean, because it the underlying themes throughout the movie are uh, human connection, right? Physical yeah. touch, right? Like 
Um, the, the very beginning, Tish says something like having to touch your loved one through glass, and they show the the very classic prison scene of hand on hand on the glass and stuff. But then, when uh, Daniel is visiting them in the flashback, and they all kind of cook, there's there's a very distinct close up with Daniel holding hands of 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 Fawny. And I, I sort of read that note differently when I read it until I until it got to the end where they're all sitting when Tish, Fawny, and their kid are sitting around the table and they kind of say grace around their vending machine food and like for them it was a victory because they get to have this physical connection and not just speak through glass all the time. Um and yeah, with the hopes that a plea deal you would assume it's a lesser charge or whatever um but you know in, in the hopes that it's getting out but that's what i think that the overall theme is is familial connections and 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 romantic one as well between uh between tish and fawny but i think family and community are are more intertwined here with vis-a-vis physical connections yeah um but yeah i mean it's 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 a good movie. It's it's just it's a it's a very kind of it's 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 a melodrama. So I'm kind of curious if Boris like allergies um, kind of were <clears throat> closing his throat while he was watching it or something. Um, um, you know the thing is, I actually I don't know if I would say it's all a melodrama. I would say that there are a couple melodramatic chunks. Um, hmm. most of the characters seem like they have a little bit more um, definition to them. So even, like as an example, the mother that comes in and has a very hoity-toity attitude about herself and she looks down on Fonny's family, or excuse me, she looks down on uh, uh, the girl's family. Tish's family. Tish's yeah. family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that scene takes a very strange turn because when mm-hmm. it starts out, it seems like it's very clear that this is uh, a lady being introduced as a villain but then there is a slap that happens like there's some very direct like uh physical violence that happens with that lady from her husband and it sort of elevates the scene past just being her as a one-dimensional character and becomes something more endemic of violence as part of uh as a reaction to sort of the situation they're living in um but even that character, like, you feel a little bad for her, but more in a way where it's, like, you can kind of see that she's probably got her own problems to deal with. Doesn't make it okay that sure. she's awful to Tish, because what she said to Tish was very right. beyond the pale. But mm-hmm. it gave a little bit more definition to it. The one character, I will say, didn't have a lot of definition, I think probably appropriately, or inappropriately, maybe. Uh, Ed Scrin, uh, Ed Scren as the cop. As the cop. Yeah, because he comes in and he's essentially that, just. I'm I think was get on you. purpose. That's. I'm sure. Yeah, was. yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure that that it's not really important who he is. It's what he represents. Yeah, he's, he's, he's more of a personification of. Yeah. You know, generational injustice and systematic racism and shit like well, that. Well, it felt weird. I don't know if this character would be in the book. I'm just comparing it because it's the other uh, white character that is prominent in the film. Uh, Dave Franco's character, who is uh, hooks them up with an apartment. But I kind of... Go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Oh, I, I was going to say there's, a. I would say, uh, three prominent white characters. There's a few Hispanic characters. And, uh, 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 um, there's a a waiter who like is a friend of theirs and seems to hook them up with meals and margarita diego luna Uh, and then pedro pascal plays the woman's father then there's the woman herself 
Then there's James Franco, who is white, but is very, very, Dave. like, they go out of their way to make sure you're aware. Did I, what did Dave I say? Dave Franco. You said James. Oh, Ron I meant Franco. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the superior Franco Dave. Um, uh, but they go out of their way. They're very clear that this is a Jewish character. He has, you know, his yarmulke on and, and all this stuff. And the only two characters that are, like, white, theoretically, you know, Christian or whatever, waspy type, type people are the cop. And then the lawyer. And the That's lawyer right. at first seems... It seems like the lawyer threw exposure to these people. And there's this whole thing about whether the the lawyer is like, they need him to be family to them. Right. Like the way they talk about, he, start, he calls him Alfonso and things like this. And they're like, if you're going to do this for us, you have to call him Fonny. And it does seem like the scales fall from the eyes of that lawyer a little bit through this connection. And I think it's very important that Franco is Jewish because I think the idea is... There's this world that people who don't have any understanding of a history of persecution just don't see. Like they're blind to it until they're for, they're pulled into it like this lawyer is who is like made to be part of the family. And this cop is the the forces of oppression, right? Sure. Like that is what he represents. Yeah. And he's, you know. So I, I think well, that he, he's uh, in it in all of one scene in, yeah. in the whole movie. Well, I mean, yeah, I th it, you got to kind of wonder what I, the reason I'm curious about this is I haven't read the original book. Like I love James I Baldwin's. Yeah. Um, I love James Baldwin. I haven't read enough of his books. Me I am too. I would say subliterate, um, <laughs> but I have you know watched him you know give speeches. Uh, the sure. famous one I believe Powers at Cambridge debating. There was a do documentary a few years ago. Yeah, I am that not was your neighbor. I am yeah. yeah. Zach, Great you just got my point, big guy. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'm going to give Russell a point because I think the observation about touch is well observed. Oh, mm -hmm. Thank you. And I, I think we can expand on that later. But I'm sorry, uh, Chris, you can go ahead. But yeah, the reason I'm bringing it up is just that um, trying to interpret what the purpose of the story was, um, because it, you know, I think it has to be viewed as like being something of not agitprop, but definitely having to do with the politics of the time and the circumstance. Sure. Thousand percent. And it. And it kind of bombed when it came out. Like 1974, the book came out. No one really responded to it at the time in general culture. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I'm really happy that they went back and have made this movie because it actually is pretty prominent for the time, kind of talking about issues that people were dealing with. But the crux of it is that it's a very specific political issue about um, race and sort of institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. um, but they're using uh, the romance to sort of bridge that gap to like wider culture. Cause it's like, it's sort of like the sense of the needing to be family with the lawyer. It's right. like people won't interpret what's actually happening to these characters. They'll just go, oh, it's a black guy in prison, whatever unless you really understand these people and stop seeing them as other and start seeing the humanity of their story. So grounding it in like her about to have a baby and the fact that you have like sort of the, the uh, structure of a romance in there um, mm -hmm. sort of helps. I think a lot of people like interpret it as a personal issue, especially with a new baby on the way. And they're able to sort of do what the lawyer was doing, where he was able to jump in and sort of see, oh, this is a person, we're family. So I kind of wonder 
if those characters um, are really intended to be fully fledged characters, or if they're just intended to sort of be uh, author insert characters for, or or audience insert characters for like the intended like right. white audience that would read this. This is your 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 fulcrum point, you know, like the cop yeah. is bad guy, right? That's yeah. that. I I think Zach's kind of right with the lawyer and the the landlord where they do get kind of fleshed out, even if it is just sort of either being charmed by the romance between Tish and Fawny or the familial sort of uh, connections that they try to impose on the lawyer. Um, with the cop, there's no sort of, all they're doing is asking them to believe him. You know, like in the, the one scene, the one interaction that Fawny and Tish have with this cop um, is you know, they were in the right and they chased the guy off and he doesn't even chase after the guy. He just would rather uh, talk to the black couple because clearly they're in trouble. And even more interesting, I guarantee that if a white person was suspected of raping a Puerto Rican woman and that Puerto Rican woman fled to Puerto Rico, those charges would go away. But because it's a black person, no, no, we're going to get this motherfucker. Um, you know, like that, that was pretty obvious to me because if i'm if i'm the lawyer and the victim skips town i'm like plea deal you lost your case like and it's it's worth noting like so this in this example obviously this guy he's on the other side of town he has an alibi for where he was that night like the case fact the logic of the case doesn't really add up and it's worth noting when daniel right. by and tyree henry comes by and talks about his imprisonment he's like i had a little marijuana on me but they got me for this car theft I can't even drive like so right. it's clearly like this pattern of you know and I thought that was telling too because you could tell us before Nixon's hardcore drug war in yeah. station you know because yeah. a, a little bit of pot would do the trick you know that'd be enough but with you know before Nixon went all heavy-handed on the drug war um it probably was um I think it's interesting that this movie takes place in the time and place that it does um because it's like that squishy in-between period between the 1960s and the late 70s, right? It's that that That, that squishy period called middle. the early to mid-70s. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's that, but I mean, culturally, <laughs> culturally, everything's kind of taken this kind of downshift, right? Like, from the height of the 60s, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of meaningful change, but changes were happening. You know, like, I'm not saying that, that everything was hunky-dory after, you know, the Voting Rights Act was passed or whatever, but I'm saying is that there was a momentum. Momentum felt like it was going on their side, right? Like, it yeah. seemed like things were going to get better, and they didn't. In fact, they got worse. And that's what struck me about this movie, watching it now, um, is that, boy, it hasn't gotten any better, has it? It's only gotten fucking worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I like the fact it didn't end with doom and gloom, because that's... Very um, true. I completely well, agree yeah. with you. Because a lot of, I mean, well, the the ending is obviously tragic. Though they remain about as optimistic as you can be in a situation like this. Yeah, and that's that's why I think I I, I really enjoy this movie compared to like Widows, which Widows was still a good movie, but I don't know why, but this movie had that kind of I don't know, like that spark of of humanity, and I I I really did feel Tish and Fawny's actual relationship, like they were genuinely like in love with each other, and even like the 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 the, the contrasting of two different families between Tish and Fawny, I still felt like like Fawny's dad. You know, he might be a fucko and a bastard, but he 
does his best, you know, like to try to do right by his kid. And he's obviously <laughs> going through shit too. And then when that whole scene happens with life, and again, what I like, what I think is weird and, but yet sensible about this movie, there's a lot of things that happen that sort of just left to dangle. Like you never see Fonny's mom or sisters ever again in the movie. That like that slap scene happens and they're done. Um, there's no real resolution or consequences to Tish's dad and Fonny's dad stealing garments and selling them in Brooklyn or whatever. Yeah, there's nothing. Like just, it's just kind of you know, yeah. just kind of left it there. Not get caught. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and in a way, I I sort of understand why because why start taking your movie off course like that and just keep it focused between the Tish and Fonny in a way I kind of, and in another way I kind of like that they do include it in is that in order to prevent my kid to get out of the clink for a crime he didn't commit, I myself am going to have to commit crime mm. to pay for the things to get it out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is this hopeless cycle uh, that, that is brought in there too. But yeah, couple... I think you're right, Bor. If the way it ends even though, yeah, it's it's tragic and sad. You get the sense of of closure, I guess, or or, and again, you get the sense that they're they are still going to be a family. They are well, still going to ride this ship. Yeah, I mean the 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 core reason that I kind of like this ending versus other endings is that it's um, specifically not uh, lazy in terms of yeah, like a lot of times when you're dealing with things like this, like I'll just use Crash as an example. That's um, your favorite. <laughs> it just comes up every time. But uh, at the end of that one, they're writing about race, and it comes to the point where someone gets killed. And it's sort of like a hopeless, downbeat ending, but, uh, like, people still got to, like, work. People still got to live. Um, it leaves you with the idea that, like, changes need to happen politically to not have that particular hamster wheel going. Because for me as an audience member, I leave going, oh, Fonny's still in prison. And I know Fonny is not a real character, or he's a character in this, he's not a real mm -hmm. person. But it, I leave then thinking like, each time I hear about like prison reform, I'm going to go, oh, Fonny was still in prison. So it's not like a done conversation for me. It's something where it's like, oh, okay, this is something that's still probably, this is still something that needs to be changed. It's not something that is hopeless and can't be touched. It's something that actively needs to be changed. Yeah. So I like I liked the fact that that was a different approach to it. It wasn't quite as melodramatic as uh, normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I want to say, a, a, I guess, a couple things about one. I think the time, I agree. The time period is, it's a weird, it's an interesting time period, especially to put a movie about black history and like black, uh, the black experience in America, because you're right. This is prior to like, the drug war ramping up, but it's also after the civil rights movement has effectively ended. Martin Luther King died a few years prior to when this story takes place. Malcolm X, and, Edgar Evers. Yeah, it's like at this point, the civil rights movement is functionally like over. I think most people put the end date in the late 60s for that. Um, and before like this next kind of wave of, you know, I think really like... I, I, I'm, I'm sure, like, this has got to be the early days, probably still, I'm gonna of the prison. I'm going to guess 1972 is my yeah. guess. Yeah. Like, I'm, 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 I'm actually curious to look at, like, a chart of, like, incarceration rates in... Hmm. Because this is probably when it's just starting. Like, at this point, the civil rights movement mm -hmm. has taken a lot of tools away from certain people in terms of how they can 
hold back black people and the prison system is what stepped up to replace a lot of those tools. Um, and yeah, so this is like, this has got to be early in that process. I also think it's interesting. This is, you know, your New York pick. I, and it is a New York movie, but I do think like, it's not so like, it's New York is not like the fifth character or whatever the fuck in this movie. I, I uh, especially because in the title about that, my friend, I have a whole speech in the, about that. Uh -huh. The title and opening quote really belie this. For one, Beale Street ain't in fucking New York. No, it's, it's not. In it's in New Memphis, Orleans. Tennessee. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah, or Memphis, Memphis Tennessee. that's right. right. Yeah. Memphis. And and the opening quote is literally like, every black people born in America was born on Beale Street. Doesn't matter if they're in Jackson, Music, uh, Mississippi or Harlem, New York. Like, it's really about, you know, just the black experience of an America. And New York is just happens to be the place where it Correct. occurs. Yeah. I, I, that was I, honestly my biggest regret with this movie once I finish it. Because again, as I mentioned, I had not seen it before, so this is a blind pick. So, you know, I, I have no one to blame but myself. But had I had to do this again, I probably wouldn't have picked this movie for this theme. Um, it's not that I didn't like it. I really liked it, but it's not really a, it's not even a black New York movie. It's more black America movie. You know, yeah, it's, 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 it, this movie could take place in Detroit. It could take place anywhere. Like it didn't but have to be New York. Uh, it does but, technically fulfill the requirement. So. I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying that, like, out of the the the, the sheer universe of options I could have picked, where New York is heavily featured, and in fact, like, even a character of the movie, eh, I could have probably picked a yeah, better one. So, I, I think I, this would have been better for A Cab for our second theme. This would have yeah, been yeah. a much better A Cab uh, theme yeah. rather than Police uh, think, Academy. <laughs> well, the, the closest this one gets to really like nailing it as far as New York is that they explain Fonny's, um alibi using street names pretty, and things like that. That's pretty deep dive into like how those city streets are set up. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I don't live in New York, it also dips into like whenever you're watching like, you know, uh, Star Trek and they start talking about the engine. I'm like, all right, I don't know what any of that means, but I'll just take your word for it. Bad, 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 boom, bad. Okay. Go for it. Dad. I mean, to be fair, uh, even perhaps even more than New York, LA is this, is the city I associate with people being like talking about the fucking roads. Yeah. Yeah. That is the big, having lived on both coast. That is, it's either you're talking about the best, uh, subway route to take or the best highway route to take. Those are your two conversations you have on either coast. Um, yeah. And the Chicago falls somewhere in the middle because it's pretty evenly split. Like there's a lot right. of driving, <laughs> not quite as robust a system as New York, but clearly better than LA for public transportation. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like I, I am, I, it's, I, I think the fact that James Baldwin chose to, to have it take place in New York was mainly that he was living in New York at the time. Because um, James Baldwin pretty much lived in France for a good chunk of his life for the most part. And you can kind of see that sort of like internationalism in his, it, like Fawny mentions, like there's a line that he says, like, if I ever had enough money, I'm getting the fuck out of this country. Like it, it, it that's that kind of, because Baldwin having been out of America and, and lived in France, um, I think if that informed a lot of his sort of like, not only, uh, you know, his sort of zealous nature to change America regards to race, but also he could understand why anybody would feel defeated and just want to get the fuck out. Um, well, th there is one thing that kind of a time and place that, uh, that ties this to it, because I think there, what, what is a sort of a, a part of American black history that was going on at this time was, uh, 
the black arts movement with people like James Baldwin and Amiri yeah. Baraka. And that I feel like is pretty New York based. Like, I For think sure. a lot especially of, and funny, funny is an artist. He, he yep. makes sculptures and yeah. Yeah. So I think, I I, I think hearing... that, that part makes sense to me. I yeah, mean, I think you had, book if this takes place the... in 19... Sorry, I was just going to say, I think this book takes place towards the end of that arts movement from what I read. I think so too. Yeah. I think you're right. It's it's a right around, if, if it takes place in like 1971, 1972, you're talking about like the most seminal album that came out for African-Americans was Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On. Um, and that album, it, it was it was Marvin Gaye's sort of return to, to music. But if you listen to the lyrics, all this music sounds like his good old fashioned soul stuff, but all the lyrics are very politically charged and motivated and and very aspirational even um so and again the, this this story kind of mirrors that too you know because it for even though it, it even though taking outside the fact that it's kind of told out of sequence um it sort of begins sort of celebratory and kind of happy you know and that's like Is she's there... got a baby and and i know she he's in prison but everybody's generally happy about it but then that slap happens and then that bleakness just sort of overcomes and consumes you yeah you know, and it's, like it's, it's i do think the hope for his release like they are optimistic about his chances for getting out and that just sort of drains bit by bit Right. As the movie carries on and their financial burdens becoming bigger and bigger. Like, how are we going to pay for this trip to Puerto Rico? How are we going to pay for this? You know, all this stuff. Um, I will say another thing briefly about the touch thing. And I think this is interesting because obviously there are a few different ways like the aspect of touch like is employed. You know, obviously there's violence. Um and, you know, theoretically, like sex, clearly Fonnie and Tish conceive a child. But I think it's important to note that they're children together. And there's these flashbacks to them in the tub where they make the specific point that they were they would explore each other's bodies. But it was not sexual. Like they were too young, like even into their teens, it seems like early teens and stuff. It's like they were it was it was like a, a love first and then a sexuality second right yeah well and it's yeah. it's it's a love that that you know that you would normally share for like a sibling or a very 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 close friend you know and when you've grown up with them and then that romantic kind of peak hits you know and that's that's why i think the, the their relationship is quite beautiful and moving um it, it's it, and and very earnest and which is mm -hmm. what i liked about it yeah. and it's the centerpiece of the movie for sure yeah, yeah. And, and it's you know like i think of yeah i don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie love story um you know but it it kind of reminded me of that only a lot less melodramatic um <laughs> you know because you know nobody's really like pounding their chest and and like you know screaming to the heavens and stuff like that but it, you're talking about the old it, ali mcgraw movie right yeah ali mcgraw okay. uh patrick o'neill yeah gotcha um, okay I, yeah um yeah that that's got a little bit more of a of a you know stage play melodrama and this one did too i mean i honestly thought watching this that this would make a pretty good stage play um i agree but i think it would be I, easily adapted to I, the stage i think it could too and i but i think part of the reason why it's it's a even more powerful film is the way Jenkins chooses his moments, especially at the climax. There's two that I'm thinking of that one right after Regina King confronts uh, the victim and she has her panic attack 
And Regina King just kind of collapses with this picture of Tish and Fawny just kind of holding it. And there's this close-up where she's holding it like this. The problem that having this as a stage play, I think, is that a lot of the real uh, crystallizing emotional moments that happen in the story, there's not a lot of dialogue. That's hard to do on a stage. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it, it from where the movie was going, yeah. it transferred from a stage play to a film towards the end where it's it's trying to tell you it with pictures rather than you know a stage play but i mean it, it like i said it 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 paces itself out like a play everyone's kind of in one room even the flashbacks you know like you can see specifically when they're meeting the uh, dave franco's character the landlord where it's an unfinished loft and they're just kind of playing they're like look there's a refrigerator right there and and dave Franco, the landlord, like lovingly just kind of goes along. I found that scene so charming and lovely. Um, and you could see that on a stage because you could just imagine it and it'd be nothing up there. It'd be really cool. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm shocked too that this book, it, when it was released, didn't get a lot of traction because Boref, you brought up the fact that the fact that Fonny and Tisha's relationship was a, uh, a sort of uh, input level for white audiences to sort of connect with. I sort of think it's the families too. I think fam- the familial connections between everybody is you could put that that's a that's a human mm-hmm. motivator with a universal adapter um and they that that through line speaks through and even with um with with daniel brian the their friend who comes and visit like he's you th- let me ask you guys this in that scene where they're holding grace and and it's after uh daniel's monologue about being inside and knowing James Baldwin, who he was about like kind of sexual liberation, especially homosexual liberation, did you guys get a vibe that maybe there was sort of some sort of homosexual tension between Daniel and Fawny? Because that's how I first saw that note when I first saw that. And then I saw the ending where they're giving grace. And I think, okay, I think it's more about the physical connection. But I did kind of, that note did strike with me. And, and Baldwin was pretty you know, he wrote about it a lot with a lot of like bisexual, homosexual characters and a lot of his literature. So I was just kind of wondering if that he, scraped, if that scratched he, you he like it scratched Might have been. Like I didn't really pick up on that when I watched it. It didn't, uh, I didn't get tension on that. I got more a sense of just general okay. closeness and probably the fact that he'd been in jail I, I, for like 10 years and couldn't touch I, anybody without it being like threatening. I, can, I think that also, uh, I, and I think this is a good scene to talk about because this scene is truly... Um, you could theoretically excise the scene with Daniel from the movie and the plot would progress the same. This is just like sort of a statement of themes and like a miniature uh, sort of encapsulation of itself. And it's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. I really think that monologue that Daniel gives is like spectacular, interesting. It's the only time, I think it's maybe the only one of the only times in the movies that they use the N word when Fonny is like, talking about trying to get an apartment and then he's like but man this country really does not like mm-hmm. you know yeah um so i don't know but i i also agree with chris i don't think it was sexual especially because what we talked about earlier right i think the grounding for this movie is love like mm-hmm. not not sex but love as a concept right. and i think expressing that you know um, However, even if it's between, you know, regardless of gender and all stuff is just, I think that's 
Yeah. Oh, like I said, I, I, well, by the end of the movie, <clears throat> I had completely, I had completely disavowed myself of that notion. I was just curious if anybody else saw that note like I did. Uh, well, but I kind of agree with that, that you could remove that from the plot and not need it. But what an important uh, highlight of what this movie's actually about. And even not even the monologue, even just the scene where they're just kind of laughing and eating. Like, that's that's what this movie's about. This movie's about these people have a sense of community. They don't... They, they Everybody has a longing for family and connection and community. Well, um, and, and this is a time in which they're starting to sort of figure it out. And it's all due to external forces just keeps chipping away and chipping away at it. And I think that that mirrors the black experience from the 1960s through the late 70s. Well, the uh, one of the lines very quickly that happens in the movie when um, Fawny first sees Daniel and they go in for that hug, they just sort of throw the line in there about, um, you know, he's 26 and he's getting to the age where he's not seeing familiar faces. And that one kind of stuck out to me as like, oh, okay, so this is a generation where he's losing a lot of the people from his generation. So even by the time he's 26, he's not seeing familiar faces anymore because they've either died or gone to prison. Yeah. So that one kind of jumped out at me. So I I understood like why they were being as comfortable and as close just because it's like, man, like if you... Uh, we ain't got anybody else. Yeah. yeah. So I can understand why some of the rules about like holding hands or anything like that might break down just because it's like, man, you got to reach out and like touch someone because they're here. Mm -hmm. um one thing you said though that i'd kind of like to uh comment on like when you're talking about it being uh something that could almost be a stage play i think it's important to kind of point out how some of this was actually shot just because like there are sequences in it that could have been shot in a very dry sort of stage play-esque manner but they actually do get into it and they talk about like the emotions of the scene and they really uh, I don't know if it was the it was probably the director or the cinematographer whoever came up with the idea in the room of how they shoot the scenes in which um, Fonnie and Tish are in prison. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, the first time she goes to see him in prison, they do this kind of interesting thing where um, they do mostly side shots, so it's mm. you seeing the characters from the outside of their conversation, and as their conversation gets more intense and more personal and almost more separating between the two of them because he starts yelling at Tish and you can kind of tell that he's he's got strange ideas like he's thinking like the DA's trying to pay to like get people to like put me in prison and things like that and as you can tell their viewpoints are not in sync the camera yeah. becomes more of like an Ozu shot where it's mm. directly to camera where people are talking so it sort of puts you right in the middle of the conversation in a way that like I don't think I would have gotten if they'd shot it as a traditional conversation. Like if it was just two people, like two shot, boring stuff like that, or like shooting it like, you know, an episode, an episode of like, you know, any crime procedural on TV where they show everybody on camera at the same time. Right. So it's one of those well, things. Like, I, if I had a point, I would have given you a point, but then you had to mention Ozu. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I, I think that that that's a good scene to bring up too, Borf, because like it's such a. What what one of the things I love, and and even going back to the Daniel monologue, um, there's a lot of implied trauma and violence that is happening within the walls of the prison that you do not see, you don't yeah. even talk about. But oh, yeah. there is this like there's that in that scene, Fawny comes out 
with half of his eye like really bloodshot. I don't I think know how they got that effect. But... I think that's the second time she goes to Is see him. Second? He's, he's okay. plainly just been in a fight. Like something's right. happened yeah. to him. But they never, nothing doesn't even get mentioned. They don't show it. You know, you just, it's just implied that behind that door where Fawny is, is absolute hell and misery. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that adds to what you're talking about too, that you're, if they did it like a traditional stage play, you would still have that kind of removal from it. But because it puts you right in there, you feel the disconnect between the two characters a lot more palpably, I think, than if it was just like a stage play. So I, I'm inclined yeah. to agree with you because that scene in particular, you you want, you could tell Tish just wants to like hold him and make it okay and stuff, but they can't because they're in between glass. And so having that kind of putting you in that, right in the middle of that connection, and you feel the missed charges that mm -hmm. these two cannot understand what the other one is going through. They, it's not possible. So it's, 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 I, I completely agree with you, Borif. Yeah, I'd be curious to go back and check if they show them in a two shot uh, before the child is born. Like after, after he goes to prison, they do I'm not when sure they're they walking down right at the beginning. After they're, they're in prison? Oh, after, well, after I don't he's know, in because prison. like, again, the way that, I, I don't know, because most of the time I don't think so. I think the only time you really see them together after they're in prison is the last shot with the kid. And yeah. even that, it's not the two of them, it's then the three of them. Um, it, I, every other time before that, they always flash back between like the two dead-on close-ups, right? So it, it's yeah. her looking at him, and then it cuts to him looking at her. Like That's, that's most of their connections post prison but when they're yeah. out of prison you know you see them together all the time i mean the the, the movie opens i think it's in the cloisters i'm not 100 percent sure they looked like the cloisters if you don't know what the cloisters is it's like this kind of weird monastery north up uptown hollywood uh, uptown new york uh it's right across you you can climb up this kind of old monastery basically and just see the bronx across the river and everything oh. that's what it looked like to me but i don't know um it, it's it, it, but and also, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Barry Jenkins himself, um, because I don't... Have you guys seen Moonlight? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have yeah. not. I have not seen Moonlight, uh, but I did see his um, uh, Underground Railroad show on Amazon, and that was very good. Um, so I was curious, Zach, since you've seen Moonlight, like, how does this contrast then? Uh, well, start by saying I haven't seen Moonlight since the year it came out. Okay. When so... Which was uh, 20... When, when, I don't know. I, I think it was exactly. like a couple of years. 16, Whenever Warren Beatty 26, messed it up. 2016, maybe? 2016, 2017, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I do think this movie is... Has a more stagey feel. It feels... You feel the script more. I think Moonlight feels a little more naturalistic in its... Uh, and its presentation as compared to this film, um, which just implies that this obviously Barry is able to Barry Jenkins is able to like change up his style depending on the material, which is obviously an asset. I think this movie was filmed the way it should have been, you know, filmed. Um, and that movie is definitely, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff about it that I mean, part part of it is about you know isolation and loneliness for this central character who like has a difficult time maintaining relationships and, and things like this. Um, uh, so I don't know. Moonlight is an exceptional film. Uh, I recommend seeing it. Maybe we'll cover it on this show someday. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's one of the best of the Oscar winners of the past 10 years. It's going to be one of the 
top two or, or I, three on that list. I actually have a uh, question for you with that. Because there was mm-hmm. a scene in this that jumped out at me as being very um, interesting. Uh, they uh-huh. the Specifically the sex scene. Because usually when you see a sex scene, especially if it's someone's first time in a movie, um, it's handled a little bit more lurid or uh, it's handled a little bit more... Oh, well, it feels more uh, melodramatic, right? Mm. And in this one, it seemed like the relationship was more the focus of that scene. So it wasn't really like a loss of innocence. It was more like a deepening of the feelings they had for one another. So you could see the like transition Mm -hmm. from being like, oh, we're kissing to, oh, this is more than a kiss. And then it turns into more. Uh, And the fact that it um, didn't, focus on the bodies in the same way that most films show it because usually it's like a lot of skin on skin and like yada 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 but in this one they had like a wide shot where the guy gets up to go take his pants off which is a very standard thing you have to do if you're going to do that uh but it handled it more as like um at least for me it felt like it was more vulnerability being vulnerable around each other, which was a deeper and more interesting area to go. And the reason yeah. I'm bringing it up as a question is I'm wondering how does Moonlight handle sex? Because I, if I'm not uh, mistaken, I think Moonlight was about the main character is gay and it's him dealing with that, right? Right. That's, that's one of the things. Yeah. It's, okay. um, you know, there's a minor spoiler for Moonlight. This happens maybe a third or halfway through the film. But he has a friend, he's young, he's maybe middle school or early high school, something like that. And they go to the beach together at night and uh, the friend gives him a hand job on the beach. And they don't show, and again, it is it is very much like, it's not, I, I think it's similar in that it's clearly not a loss of innocence thing. It's not graphic or gratuitous. The main focus is on the main character's hand in the sand as hmm. he like, you know, is experiencing, you know, pleasure or what have you. And it's very much like meant to be romantic. These characters are very vulnerable and open with each other. And the main character has difficulty finding connections like that. He's very defensive and sort of hostile and and has a tendency towards violence and pushing people away. So it's rare for him to have experiences like this. And I think it is a scene about vulnerability and not about, you know, judgment. Sure. As it were. Yeah, uh, and 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 in this movie, it's it's almost treated almost like a dreamscape. You know, like it's yeah. it's it's kind of ethereal. Um, and it's and, not. And I want to say that also, go, if I could just expand. Go for it. Uh, Moonlight um, is based on. I think it's based. It might be. I think it's based on a book or a play or something. But there's a there's a something that the phrase comes from. Um, it's something like black boys look blue in the moonlight and the scene on the beach is like the one where that you know they look like blue figures in the moonlight in that scene so it's also like sort of the sort of the titular scene of the film Hmm. Hmm. interesting yeah and it's 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 so yeah so it's not like but it's also not like they're not showing any skin i mean it's it's there, I'm thinking of the scene specifically when Tish and Fani conceive of the child. It's all this kind of overhead, you know, it's it's not a lot of full frontal nudity, but there is, you could tell there's naked, sweaty bodies and stuff. Um, you know, it doesn't go full, you know, 
don't look now or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> Donald Sutherland's having sex with Julie Christie or some shit like that. Like it's, it's a lot more, there's closeness to it. You know, that's yeah. not, they're not playing it for it, the sex. I think you in know? both cases, it's about the emotion and not about the titillation or the sort of, um, the, I guess you could say like the, uh, arousal or sure. something like that. Yeah. I yeah. think it is very much meant to be about emotional connection and not physical. Right. Yeah. M and more so than physical. Yeah. And that's why I, I kind of got that too. One of the things I also liked about this movie, I, I since we, I want to talk about the cast cause uh, Regina King did win an Oscar for this movie um, and deservingly so, but I wanted to talk about her little B story. Cause I, I found a, an interesting turn in that. So the beginning of the movie, that's with the conflict between Tish's uh, family and Fawny's family happen and the slap happens. That's when Fawny's mother starts going off on this religious sort of nonsense gobbledygook. Regina King's character not only doesn't seem impressed by this attitude, but seems outwardly offended um, by her sort of uh, moralizing and yeah. getting up on her high horse. And she's I, reticent to invite them over in the first place right. when Coleman Domingo has the idea. Right. Um, one of the things I think that um, is interesting, though, is that her story concludes with her confronting the victim in Puerto Rico. And what finally gets the, the victim from Puerto Rico to kind of break down is Regina King notices the crucifix that she's wearing around her neck and she appeals to her religion. She appeals to her faith, which I found to be an interesting note considering where we opened with this character, where she's, if not openly distasteful of judgment and moralizing, she seems resentful of the entire institution to begin with. But then be, due to her hopelessness and her desperation to try to get this woman to come forward that she might have the wrong guy she goes for the the religious icon i just found that pretty interesting and that's what sets her off and and that pretty much concludes regina king's story um i just thought it was an interesting note on that b story well uh, that it kind uh, of you know the yeah. the one detail with that though is that it seems like regina king's character might have been more uh revolt repulsed by the um false faith that the mother mm. had because mm -hmm. it like i think regina king's character might actually have faith and like reaching out to the for the icon was like a legitimate thing but i think that the uh the fact that the mother who gets slapped was using religion as a a, a, a reason to keep these kids separate and to judge everybody Rather yeah. than as a reason to sort of lift everybody up, might have been one of the main reasons they jumped out at that. Um, That's, you know, using it as a cudgel. But what yeah. I'm saying is that Regina King kind of appealing to that too is more or less kind of doing the same thing from that, from, from uh, this victim's eyes that like she's trying to get her to admit that nothing happened. And, and it's great conflict. Cause like I said, it, it's, th there's an interesting scene at the beginning where Tish asks, I think one of like her older sister, like, do you really think this woman was raped? And, and the sister's like, Oh, I think she was raped. I just don't think it was funny, you know? And, yeah. and that scene very much says, Oh yeah, something fucking happened to her. Something really bad yeah. happened to her. Um, but yeah, it clearly couldn't have been funny. But, and then another, another I want to ask you guys, what did you guys make of that whole wig sequence with Regina King right before she meets uh, Pedro Pascal, the, the victim's father? I think it's her father. Um, it, it, 
they're they, um, she kind of goes back and forth and it's a long they spend a long time on this one shot with her you, the camera's clearly the mirror and she's like fixing I, her wig and then she kind of goes back and forth on wearing it or not i think i might be able to make a comment on this um i read um a sizable chunk of uh x uh the autobiography of malcolm x um alex uh-huh. haley and uh in mm-hmm. that there's a lot of things in that that are kind of surprising because they get into the background history of Malcolm X in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated because I would have thought going into it, I assumed that most of it would have upfront been about politics. But the reality is, is the upfront of it is him talking about his childhood and then um, coming up and being young. And he got what is referred to as a crop, which is um, this thing they would do where they would kind of do their hair into a bouffant um young black Mm -hmm. men and then they would get uh, peroxide Mm -hmm. and they would put peroxide on their scalp on their hair for a very long time and how it was introduced in the book and what uh, malcolm x's uh, comments on it were he was disrespecting Hmm. his own hair and his own heritage and who he was and sort of the innate um black is beautiful which is a a thing Mm. that became a real like rallying cry later so i have a feeling that that scene was more about her feeling like she was covering up who she was in a way that might have really bothered her. Um, because I think, as we all probably know, uh, hair is extremely important to uh, women. It's part of their identity. Mm-hmm. The fact that she had to hide that just so that she could try to put on a face to talk to this woman um, yeah. was a yeah, moment. Famously, so, obviously, yeah. um, black, like, black hair, African uh, people's hair uh, regardless of american or whatever else is markedly different from like maintaining hair of like say a caucasian person like there's specialty products and for many many years you couldn't you they just weren't available people didn't know how to deal with it so yeah it is like a pretty key part of i think black identity yeah i that was kind of the that that's sort of the 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 mode i understand of what that conflict was but a lot of it i felt for her the character herself was, am I going to approach this as, how open about this am I going to approach? Because I find it interesting that she sees the dad with the wig, but does not see the victim with the wig on. So there's this sort of like, how vulnerable am I going to be to these strangers who I've never met while I try to appeal to them to feel my story? Do I come at them like, how they want to see me do I come at them and how I actually am that was sort of the read I got from it because I I do know the the sort of socio-political thing about about African-American hair or African hair really um about how you know western civilization is basically beaded out of them um and to try to conform into our society rather to the society that, that and their own aesthetic um but I also I also felt it was more of like a uh, an armor for her. She was it's it's a a vulnerability thing for the character, uh, while still being the the socioeconomic stuff. But I just got more of the character read out of it. But it says something about that scene that there's no dialogue, but yet it spurred this whole conversation about this, and it's just one little bit there. And I think that says a sure. lot about the film. And I, I do want to mention briefly, like the. The thing about, uh, I, I, I have to agree with, I believe, Chris, that when he said, like, he thinks the thing that uh, caused the Fonny's mother to get, like, a reproachful response from Regina King is her blatant hypocrisy, like, her clinging to this religious ideology, but, like, her actions, I think the movie makes clear, don't, like, 
she and the sister are the only two people in Indy's families you do not see trying to help Fawny at all. Right. Like, at no point do they do anything. Like, they have Tish's mother go over, like, her, Fawny's own mother doesn't go to Puerto Rico. Tish is the one, Tish's mom is the one who goes to Puerto Rico to try and, like, convince this lady to recant her testimony. I mean, I think her absence is what is indeed something you're supposed to read into the character of Fonny's mother. That's an interesting point. Uh, since we're talking about the parents, too, one of my favorite lines that Tish's dad says to uh, Fonny's dad, they're sitting in a bar trying to figure out what to do about raising the money uh, for Fonny's defense. And, and, and Fonny's dad is very much like, what are we going to do about the money? And Tish's dad has this great line, which I love, like, you ever had money before? No. Well, why are you worried about it now? Like, what's the difference? You never had money. What difference does it make? No. Um, and I, I, that was what a, what a simple statement to say so much. I, I like that it was Tish's dad that came up with the scam too, not Fonny's yeah. dad. Yeah. Because when you first yeah. meet Fonny's uh, dad, you think, oh, maybe he's, maybe he's a scoundrel because he punched the mom. But no, he's just a dad. And uh, yeah, I think everybody watching it and reading it, like I was completely on the side of them. Like, yeah, steal whatever you need, do whatever you got to yeah, do. Yeah, like, it doesn't right. matter. Yeah, it's a victimless yeah. crime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a powerful statement about family and really like the justice system because I think that overall, the fact that that Fani in the plot has to take a plea deal should tell you something about people who are currently locked up for something they didn't do. If, that they took, well, they took a plea deal. If they didn't do it, why did they take the plea deal? Well, shut the fuck up. You know, like, because what option do you fucking have? You know, like, I, I, because if you don't, I mean, if you don't take that deal and you go to trial, they will throw the fucking book at you. You will never see the fucking light of day. Um, yeah. So this is the game that they play that like, okay, well, we'll lock you up for a little bit. You know, I know we, we got the wrong guy, but what if we just lock you up for a little bit rather than the whole thing? Oh, you won't take a little bit. Well, we're going to do the whole thing then. You know, like it's, it's a, yeah. it's a game. Not a lot and of, it's, it's not a lot of talk about an Alfred play here. Yeah. It's yeah, like, you're just right, going to be yeah, taking right. full, full guilt. Doesn't matter if you don't think you did it. Yeah. Right. Never mind that my case is just evaporated into the ether with this victim being gone. I've got no case. All I've got is a cop who couldn't have possibly been over there. Who says I chased Fawny down even though you're on the fucking west side and he lives on the east side of Harlem there's no way you would have made that mistake um but that's also you know like what is uh that that famous you know Willie Horton ad I mean shit just hasn't gotten better you know like you've seen one Willie Horton you've seen them all you know like it's 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 fucked up and we haven't that it, it drives me crazy whenever I learn about this era in the 70s of how since then nothing has changed. In fact, it's gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. It's gone one direction and it's not showing any signs of reversing course. Um, and I think if James Baldwin were alive today, he died in 1987, uh, he would be ripping it. He would want to be dead because he's like, really, we're just not gonna fucking learn. We refuse to learn the lessons that are right in front of us. It's outrageous. He's, uh, he's so well-spoken that I don't know if he would work out in this time period simply because the oh, pundits have become like an echo chamber of like nonsense I know. opinions I mean, and, going and back and the, and forth. The, the quality of dialogue has downgraded to the level yeah. of just dribble yeah. where Baldwin was a fantastic orator. Dear listener, just get on YouTube and listen to any one of his speeches. It is well worth your time. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, it's an era where the main... 
battleground for debate has a character limit. You know, it's just not. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not built for. I could not imagine Baldwin on like that thread would be 80 tweets long. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, or uh, definitely watch that documentary. Oh, I am not your Negro. If you, if, it's if really you, good. Yeah, yeah, I, really I, good. Can I share a quick uh, story about uh, when I saw Bill Street could talk in the theater uh, back in 2018? Because uh, this is again, I mentioned a couple times. I'm a really big fan of the uh, uh, Brian Tyree Henry scene, and that speech he gives about like how they could do anything to you and how scared you are. And one of my main memories from this is like, I was really invested in that scene. I was really enjoying the theater. I was with Shannon. We both were enjoying it in the middle of his monologue. Of course, some 75 year old white person as her cell phone goes off, does not fucking know how to handle it. It's on full volume. Of course, not even on vibrate. Old people shouldn't be able to go to movies. (laughs) Old people and small children. I think there's two extremes Depends on the movie. Yeah, I mean, if I'm yeah. if I'm if I'm in their turf, then that's on me. You know, like I, I'm not gonna, you know, like if I'm seeing. Unfortunately, though, like half the time when you go to these movies that are like these art house movies, the only people in the audience is a few young people and then mostly old people because yeah. I don't they know don't younger people go works. to like blockbuster shit mostly. I feel <laughs> they like don't understand yeah. how streaming works. <laughs> yeah, they don't know how to get it on streaming, so they go in person. Yeah. Like, oh, this is a good one. I'm gonna go see it in the movie theater. With my COVID yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. No. All uh, right. It was pre-COVID, well, at least. Well, well here. Um, I'm, I'm going to say one thing. Okay, let's, yeah. Let's pause real quick, because i got to use the restroom. And then okay, sure. we come back and maybe do final thoughts. Final thoughts? Yeah, yes, I can dig cool. it. All right. Be right back. I think we're ready for to wrap up. Yeah. But yeah, I really should have picked a different movie. Yeah, I mean it is a good movie, and I think it's there's a, a good chance movie. it'll. I, just, I think there's a good chance it'll win, but it, yeah, it's not I the think best. yeah, I'm, I'm prepared for that too. I just I, I don't know. I I it, I'm disappointed in myself, really. Not not so much that I picked this movie because the movie's great, but I just I don't know. For New York, I just felt I kind of missed the missed the target. I could have hit the target better. How about that? I could have hmm. nailed it a little. Yeah, there are movies that are more emblematic of, of right, the yeah. city of but New York. I've never seen it before, so you get what you get, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but yeah. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, nope, no worries. Okay. Next time, uh, bring a bottle and you can, <laughs> you can continue the show. <laughs> I take that as an offense. I will have you know that I will be a Depends man. 
<laughs> or a stadium buddy is how I do it. Uh, Ballpark buddy. <laughs> God, what an American invention that is. Some fat, lazy American can't get up and go to the bathroom at a fucking Jeez. baseball game. You know, while we're while we're paused, we might as well do our math, and then we can come back, do final thoughts, and then yeah, dive into sure. it. Yeah, right now, uh, Chris, you have 11 points. Uh, I have 12 points, and Zach, you have 13. 13. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Zoom tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess this one will do. Okay. Okay. I liked all three of these. I did too. Yeah. I'm, I'm having yeah. to give kind of a harsh... Yeah, I did too. I'm having to do a harsher math on this than I'd like. But yeah, I hear that. Okay. Yeah, that is always the, the, the crux of the game, really. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I guess that brings us to uh, final thoughts on if Beale Street could talk. Um, I guess I'll just go first since that's it was my movie. Um, I really like this movie. It's that great blend of melodrama fluffiness mixed with like grounded tragedy of a oppressed world um and plus the extremely charming and relatable romantic connection and familial connection with all the characters um you find them relatable and more than relatable you're transfixed by it you're you're even invested in it um, you're like that lawyer. You're going to start calling him Fonny because he's family to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked it. Um, so, and that being said, everyone should, I, I, I am criminally underread when it comes to Baldwin, but I have seen a couple of his speeches and, and saw the, the, I am not your Negro movie. So if you haven't done any of that, I do recommend again, any of his speeches or do watch that documentary. Cause it's really great. Um, but again, as I mentioned earlier, if I had to do this again, I probably wouldn't have picked this movie for this particular theme just because the New Yorkness was present. And the fact that it's taking place in Harlem where most of culture in New York, black, the black New Yorker experience quarter comes from, um, I felt like this movie could have taken place anywhere and where it was, wasn't really important. It was the fact that it was America is really the important part. So that being said, it still takes place in New York. I know I fulfilled the requirements, but considering that there are, I, I just didn't hit the bullseye as much as I wanted to, but I had never seen it before. So you take that risk. So uh, I'm more than happy that I watched it um, and I highly recommend it. So um, yeah, that would be my thoughts on if Beale Street could talk. Good movie. Uh, I will jump in next. Uh, yeah, uh, I do. I I concur. This uh, as 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 a New York movie, um, not the not the biggest, uh, not the strongest pick. Uh, right. But I think as a film, like you know, I think it just based on our discussion of like uh, this period in Black history, like the way that the way uh, the the wheels of sort of oppression were pivoting at this time period. Um, the 
the way it looks into in a little bit more of a timeless way, like familial bonds and love. Like, I think that this is a strong movie with a lot going on. Obviously, James Baldwin, you know, he's a genius. You, you know, you adapt his book. You got some good source material there. Um, and Barry Jenkins, one of like the strongest upcoming directors, really recommend you guys check out Moonlight. Um, I almost wish that uh, Us took place in L.A. and uh, Chris had picked that because then we would have accidentally been like young black filmmakers. Uh, with uh, like That would have been the accidental theme of this round. Yeah, um, and we, we have two of the most, I, I think, the most prolific and successful African-American actresses uh, in both these films with Regina King and Viola Davis. So. Oh, for sure, yeah. Mm, uh, and of course, Elliot Gould... Yeah, yeah, of course. Prolific. (laughs) Prolific, Uh Elliot. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, But regardless, yeah, it's a really, it's a great movie. Um, Yeah, uh, it feels, it does have aspects that feel like a stage show, the way it's written and the way that the, you know, you don't see anything spectacular. Even the violence is really never shown on screen except for that slap. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess funny throwing that guy out of the store, if you want to count that. Yeah. Um, more of a pratfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, no, it's a really strong movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend uh, seeking it out. Uh, even in spite of our, you know, spoilers, you know how it ends and all that. But it, it, it is worth seeing the, the you know, it's it's not how it's not what happens. It's how it happens. You know what I mean? Exactly. So. I mean, we told it in order. So, I mean, you'll never know how the movie turns out, dear audience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's That's basically it for me. Um, I like this one a whole lot. Uh, I will echo the same thing that my two cohorts just said. It is a great movie. It is also iffy on the actual thing we're doing this time around. Um, <laughs> but it does uh, technically qualify. So we got to. No, I, I, I can't. We are not disqualified. I, I will yeah, not yeah. vote to disqualify. We've never <laughs> disqualified yet. One day <laughs> it'll happen. Maybe. One day it will yeah. happen. I'm sure it'll be something I pick. Um, the uh, uh, I did enjoy. I enjoyed all of it. I think the one of the things that I will remember about this one is that it very quickly bounces into and out of sort of a, a more standard staging and visualization to stuff that's a little bit more arty. And most of the times it gets arty, it has more to do with the emotions of it. So I really liked that, that it was something that when the emotions become real, the film moves further away from sort of standard filming and standard framing to more emotional-based framing and uh, sort of helped give some gravity to scenes that they might not have had if you had just seen them from afar and hadn't been right involved. Um, I enjoyed the fact that it was uh, not as melodramatic as these sometimes can get. Um, And of course, uh, the fact that it's a James Baldwin novel, uh, I'm very interested to see how much of this film was directly adapted from that novelization and how much of it was probably reinterpreted by the filmmakers. Um, yeah, I would suggest this to anybody. I haven't seen Barry Jenkins' other film, Moonlight. Um, uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, cause I, yeah, I'm going to have to correct that. Yeah. I had a good time with this say, one. I'm um, very interested. The only other, like I said, if I'm look, looking at best picture winners of the 2010s, like, Moonlight and Parasite are the ones that are the, the top of the top of the charts for me. That makes that. sense. That okay. Makes sense. 
All right. All right. Well, well, that's, uh, yeah. So I'll, I will have to check out Moodlight. Okay. So that was a interesting uh, theme, Zach, uh, to kind of pigeonhole us in different pools. And try of to movies. make them creative. Yeah. No, good job. Good job. Um, okay. So with that in mind, uh, let me just remind the listeners of our point total before we get to the voting. Uh, Chris, you have 11 points for final voting. I myself have 12 points for final voting. And Zach, you have 13 points for final voting. Great. Um, so we've got all of our index cards ready for the voting. Uh, so let's get us started with Widows. Chris Boroff, what do you got? And unfortunately, I really liked Widows, but because I only had 11 points and I am having to game the system, I had to give it two. And I, I feel like I'm committing a crime because it was a good movie. I am sorry, but I'm giving it a two. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat with you, Borif. I liked Widows a lot more than my score reflects, but due to my... Here's the thing. The other two movies, one I like more, but one is a lot better. So uh, I give Widows a three. Um, you know, it's a good movie, but it, there, it was a strong contender debate. And, and if, if the closest one to this is Beale Street, and Widows didn't have that kind of, like, heart, that, that kind of glowing glowing light at the end of the tunnel and maybe it's just because it's it's so grief stricken that that's sort of part of the movie but i felt beale street was a little bit more enjoyable because i i had that that heat to to follow with the with the heart of the romance and the the family and stuff um so yeah all right zach widows what do you got uh, i went ahead and give widows a four um a respectable score because this was a pretty strong round uh all 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 the way through i think but unfortunately, I do think that eliminates it from contention. I think you're probably right. Okay, so Chris Boroff, what do you got for the long goodbye? The long goodbye. I have given the long goodbye a six, and I've driven drawn a picture of a cat. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> With a very particular taste of cat food. He's, he's... These illustrations are very helpful. I'll, yeah, I'll think about that next time. <laughs> um, I myself gave Long Goodbye a five. Uh, and again, but this is my fandom really just kind of showing through just because I absolutely love that movie. But um, yeah, I, I could understand why it doesn't hit for everybody, but I'm glad Bor picked it. And I will say as far as the theme, I think your movie kind of hit the theme the best where LA I think is not only properly represented, but almost a character in of, of itself. Uh, I will say I gave Long Goodbye also a four. If if I really had a kind of, I mean, obviously I had to split, you know, a, a, an odd number of points and all that. If I had um, sort of a gun to my head between uh, Long Goodbye and Widows, I think I actually do prefer Widows a smidge. I think I'm the odd man out on that one. But uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be a four for the Long Goodbye for me. Okay, so that puts the Long Goodbye at 15 points. So 15 to beat. So... Chris Bora, four. If Beale Street could talk, if Borif could talk, what would Beale Street get? Uh, and again, I really liked Beale Street, and I'm sorry to do this. I'm giving it a three, not because it wasn't a really good movie, but because I only had 11 points to do something with. Fair so enough. I'm sorry. It's a no, good film. I, you should see it. I was too biased. I should have given. I should have given away uh, another point to you, Chris. I, I, it escaped my mind. Uh, I, uh, I just like your your picture of this. It's just a street with a little speech bubble. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Beale Street could talk. I mean, to be to be real, there's few things that you can draw a picture of that aren't going to uh, be problematic. So that is yeah. very true. Uh, okay, well, I kind of in the same boat because of the amount of points that I had. I would have again. I think Beale Street is a better movie than Long Goodbye, but I like Long Goodbye a little bit better, so I gave Beale Street a four. Uh, I gave If Beale Street Could Talk a five. Uh, it is my personal favorite of the three, um, but I don't think that matters. I think the no, Long Goodbye is going uh, to take this one. Long wins it by three points hey. with 15 Wow. 12. All well, right. congratulations, guys. Uh, you're racist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks. Thanks. If you mean to tell me that Elliot Gould smearing uh, fingerprint ink on his face and singing Al Jolson is racist, then I just don't know what racist is anymore. Well, it's going to be an interesting conversation next time we meet because since yes, I guess I have won. Because now, since Borif won, he gets Borf to pick wins. the Borf next wins. theme. Uh, okay. So, Chris Borif, what, uh, what trap are we going to be victim uh, to? Okay, so here's the theme. Uh, it is a film that changes genre halfway through. Now, this is different than a portmanteau film or a anthology film, because in anthology films or portmanteau films, those are short films put together, and then you get a bigger effect. This is something that would start off as a romance and then turn into horror or something similar to that. Okay. Also, different... For example, than Shaun of the Dead, because Shaun of the Dead is comedy and horror at the same time all the way through. This is a film that has a specific point where it changes and it becomes something else. So, the film I have okay. picked out is a classic... Genre shift films, we'll call it, to be... Yeah. Genre shifts, uh, yep. Yeah, okay. That's, that's an easier, uh, brief elevator pitch on it. So, I picked sure. out a film by a director that we have seen before. Uh, this is a film directed by Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue. Uh, it stars James Fox and Mick Jagger. And oh, this boy. is Mick Jagger's second film. And this film was so intense for James Fox that this is the last film he made before leaving acting for eight years to become an evangelical Christian. Because whatever he got into in this film was that wild. And the film I have picked out is definitely some Chris shit. It is called Performance. This is going to be fucking weird. I haven't seen it before, but I know that it starts off as one thing, changes to something else halfway through. This is a, uh, a film school-ish pick, but it has been on the list of like greatest British films, yada, yada, yada. So it's right at the tail end of the 60s when it was filmed. It was released in 1970. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, Nicholas Rogue, of course, is Don't Look Now. Uh, Donald mm -hmm. Camel is uh, famous for making a bunch of strange art films, but also the Demon Seed adaptation that I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but it uh, was one of the early, like, computers bad, computers are going to take over home automation and, like, all sorts of problems. It's a very strange art film because usually, like, you know, you have films that are, like... Uh, about you know uh, computers as bad and science as bad this one did that but it got very very weird about the metaphysical and things like that because the computer basically desperately wants to have a baby with julie christie in demon seed 
performance, uh, we're going to get into it and see what it is. Okay, performance. All righty, well, uh, that, if it's uh, delivering how Borov should be promised, uh, I should need a lot of aspirin. Uh, yes. So, l with that in mind, uh, join us next time for our genre shift theme, where we will start yeah. with... Uh, Borov's pick for uh, a couple ideas for this. I think I've got a pretty. I'm going last, so yeah, we'll see what yeah. Happens. So yeah, <laughs> it'll be Borov and then me and then Zach, and that'll be the genre shift theme. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, I'm looking forward to getting started on a new theme. And um, yeah, well, this has been fun, and uh, please, uh, you know, tune in, subscribe, like, write reviews, tell us how much you love us or hate us. Uh, yeah, but hit you us know. up on YouTube. Like and subscribe. Yeah, it for helps. sure. We're 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 on Twitter at the Movie Trap. We're on Facebook. Find us, like us, be friends with us. We're nice people. Um, certainly not going to accuse you of raping somebody when you didn't. Um, so, uh, with that, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a callback to the movie we watched. Yeah, that's okay. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Alrighty, with that in mind, I have been Russell Carlson. Thank you for joining us in the movie trap. I have been joined by Chris Borov. Take it easy. And I've also been joined by Zach Powers. Can you tell me how to get, how to <laughs> get, get to, to Beale Street? Uh, whatever, right. it'd be Booker T and the MGs doing it. It would rock. Um, okay, and as we always say here on The Movie Trap, Diane Ladd is too young to play Chevy Chase's mom. Mm, it's The Movie Trap promise. It's a true story. We'll see you guys next time. See, Tish, it's, it's not done. It's a work in progress. Ronnie, I'm sorry, but how are we going to make this into a home? Look, look, imagine there are walls, right, over here and over here. I mean, see, none of this is going to be here. It's going to be like we got our own little space. And maybe there'll be some other young folks over there and, and over there, like a community, right? Yeah, a community, yeah, sure. But where are we going to cook and sleep and bathe? I mean, where are my mama and them going to sit? Easy. Look, I put a couch right over here. Huh? Mama, daddy, maybe even Ernestine, right? And the bed I put all the way back there, right against the wall. So I can see that pretty light on your face when the sun rises. Some of my sculptures over here and, and over here, right? As far as eating goes, I was thinking, I was thinking we could put a table right here. What you think? I don't know, Fonny. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing we missing is the fridge. But I don't want to throw my back out before we even have a chance to make a kid. <laughs> <laughs>